Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome to The Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined by Bruce Feldman. Uh, from two different locales, I am in St. Louis, where I attended my wife's grandfather's 100th birthday party on Saturday night, and Bruce is in L.A. about to head out to yet another conference media days. Yeah, after I saw you at SEC media days, I got home at midnight uh, Wednesday night for Pac-12 media days on Thursday and Friday, and now I am heading out for the Big 12, which I'll be there for two days with some of our Fox Sports colleagues. So it should be uh, should be an interesting couple of days. So, Stu, let's circle back to SEC Media Days because we didn't have a chance to do anything on Wednesday. Alabama had gone. Arkansas had gone. Uh, Missouri had some big news out of there with A.D. Mack Rhodes leaving, and that's when Barry Odom, the new head coach, had to kind of deal with the fallout of that. Uh, as well as Kentucky went. Was that, so, a, uh, did you keep a, was that a coincidence, or did somebody, you think, wanted that news out there right when Barry Odom was going to have to face all the media? I think it was, you know, it was known earlier in the day. I want to say that was broken a few hours before that, so I'm not sure how much time. I don't think anyone was trying to throw Barry Odom under the bus intentionally on that. Well, I sort of put him in an awkward position his first, uh, you know, time in, in, on that circuit as a head coach. Um, I had just left town myself. I read the transcript. It sure seemed to me. He said that Mac Rhodes met with him the night before. He it wasn't like it was you know caught him by surprise, but it also seemed like he really wanted to try to turn the attention back to his team. What choice does he have? I mean, you know, no chancellor, no president. So much, so much uncertainty and instability at Missouri. This is a first time head coach. Now he did play at Mizzou. He was on the staff last year. Um, you know, it's just a, uh, it's de- definitely an awkward time there for him. Well, yeah, I mean, and, here uh, I am in the state, and I've asked some people here about it because, you know, Mizzou, the flagship university, has always been uh, held with certain esteem. And I just think that over the past year, well, just from an athletic standpoint, when Missouri went to the SEC in the first place, a lot of people, myself included, thought they were going to stumble. Uh, it seemed like they were getting in over their head, and then, of course, they seem to be proving us wrong with back-to-back SEC title game appearances. And Gary Pinkle was kind of at the height of his run there. And it's just amazing to me how quickly this has unraveled. Uh, some of its circumstances beyond anyone's control. Gary Pinkle's health, obviously. Um, the protests there last year, I think, really did a number on this school. The school has, is having um, you know, sharp decline in enrollment and funding. And now... Um, you have an athletic director who was there for, what, 15 months? Um, is bolting for what you would, what most people would think to be a much more dysfunctional athletics department in Baylor. Yeah, now one of the people told me they thought, okay, well, he's going to have a certain amount of, of flexibility and freedom to kind of maybe maybe to, to make a big, a big 
imprint at Baylor because he could almost come in like he's riding on the white horse to kind of really change things and be part of the rebuild. Whereas at Missouri, I think there's there's a lot of things going in a lot of different directions right now, quite honestly. That may so be right. Get- yeah, that may be right, but I, I you know people aren't very understanding, you know, when, when if if things aren't going well at Baylor for football in the next couple of years, um, I don't know if they're gonna you know, give him a pay. If they struggle, he'll be taking the heat for it. So really, this, you know. Well, this will be the third head coach, he'll have, head football coach he'll have hired in about 17 months. Or maybe Crazy. maybe more than that. Probably it'll turn out to be like probably 22 months because he had hired Tom Herman at Houston. That obviously worked out very well. He hired Barry Odom in Missouri. We'll see how that goes. Those are both first-time head coaches. And we'll see what direction he goes in. You know, look, if Jim Grove goes – 12 and 0 somehow you know who knows maybe they can it's not like he, has, he, he wasn't a proven commodity before but we all think that that's probably going to go in a different direction come this winter you know if the, the rumors that went out immediately you know as soon as this news came out there were rumors that uh or report that that mac rose is already meeting with tom herman about a, i almost at first I, I thought they meant oh, oh there he's talking to him for next year already but no, some people are apparently under the assumption or the belief that he wanted Tom Herman to go ahead and take the job right now. You know, three weeks before. I don't. Uh, I don't buy that at all. That was. Ne- I don't care who it is. That's never going to happen. But certainly, he would make a lot of sense, uh, given the connection. He would make a lot of sense for that job um, come December. I think it's going to be. I think it's going. I know Tom Herman pretty well. I don't. I don't think it's going to be. He's going to have some some very interesting options. I'm not sure he's going to want to jump into Baylor, which will still be dealing with some of the fallout. They basically have had a a empty 2016 recruiting class, how it's unfolded. And it's going to, you know, right now they have one commitment. They've lost a bunch of commitments. So you're going to be scrambling there. Well, everybody's just assuming that he's going to have an opportunity at either Texas or Texas A&M. But what if both those coaches turn things around this year and keep their jobs? Of course, the other possibility that nobody talks about is what if Houston fails to live up to What if Houston goes 8-4 and four this year? Will that affect his stock at all? I got another one for you. What happens if Houston makes the playoff and then he has Kyle Allen, who's the former five-star quarterback, coming in? They're paying him pretty good money. It's not like he has to leave Houston uh, after, you know, within his first two years there. I mean, he could stay and wait it out and see what his options are. I suppose if those the two big ones in Texas don't come open this year, yeah, why not stay for another year? Um, and there's always going to be big jobs come open still. Yeah, but you gotta. It's a tough business. You gotta time it right. You can't miss your opportunity, your window. Um, you know, I think Chris Peterson was a rare situation where he wasn't necessarily looking for the USC job, so he could wait and wait and wait. And when the time was right, Washington was a good fit there. But there have been other coaches over the years who thought. They were going to do better, and then they don't have. I mean, take Kevin Sumlin, right? Two years ago, we thought he'd you know, NFL, USC, any number of possibilities. He is fighting for his own job at A and M right now. I don't think Kevin Sumlin is going to be out of work in 2017, no matter what happens, though. And I think in the case of Tom, you really Herman, think if Texas A and M were to go six and six this year, there wouldn't be a serious calls for his job there might be a move to i don't i'm not saying he wouldn't but i think tom i think kevin summer will, will be will have a head coaching job somewhere and it won't be a small school 
or it won't be a small team if it's in, you know not the NFL. I just be very, I'd be very surprised if he didn't have a still have a big job somewhere in 2017. Now, getting back to Tom Herman for a quick second, he's in Houston. Houston is built to to be a powerhouse in that AAC, as we mentioned. You know, talent wise, I mean, they have the best recruit in that conference by a mile. Who's going to be a freshman defensive lineman there? They, like I said, they have Kyle Allen sitting out. They have some really good skill talent there. They have one of Baylor's top recruits who just transferred in there as, you know, will be a freshman next year. You know, whether they make the playoff or not, they're going to be a double-digit win team for a while, I think. And he is a guy who is positioned differently than a lot of other guys where you could say, oh, well, this guy's only, you know, if an SEC job comes open or this guy's a West Coast guy. Tom Herman was from California. He had had success, you know, led Ohio State, helped them get win a national title. He coached at Iowa State, and he spent a lot of time in Texas. And South Carolina would have loved to have had him as its head coach. I think Tom Herman is one of the rare guys who, whatever job comes open, he is geographically positioned in the right way where he could get it. So, I mean, that's why I don't think he needs to jump at just, hey, this is a pretty good job. He can get a pretty good job, I think, any year. Okay, yeah, we, we, we know, yeah, so, we know um, you're, how high you are in Houston. You keep talking about them as a playoff team. I still continue to believe that's a long shot, even for an undefeated Houston team. And I think that there's just such a divide between the Power Five and the Group of Five. You know, to have the kind of situation you just described, where they're basically a powerhouse. Um, I'm not saying they're a powerhouse, but I think in the case you mentioned, Chris Peterson. Uh, and Chris Peterson is more, I think, and I think the world of him. But Chris, Chris Peterson's persona is different than Tom Herman, where there are some programs you couldn't see Chris Peterson at just because he's much more low-key. There's but, not a but program. I just got to stop you for a second. Chris Peterson, you're having a conversation here. I like Tom Herman. I think he's a really good coach. We're, we're going way down the road here for a guy who's been a head coach for one season. You know, Chris Peterson did this year after year after year. Uh, so you're saying pump the brakes. Yeah, I would pop the brakes a little bit. I, 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 there may be one reason why he is being rumored for all these jobs is he knows he's got to strike while the iron's hot, and this is a great run he's in the middle of with Greg Ward Jr. You don't know if that's sustainable at an AAC uh, school. My, my point to you, Stu, though, is this isn't a case where there are some programs where they are, you know, look, I think what Dan Mullen did at Mississippi State was pretty impressive. You know, he had Dak Prescott, but you are not resourced the way the LSUs and, you know, you're – I think it's relative to what you play every every other Saturday, every Saturday. So I'm not saying Tom Herman's going to go 12-0 and 0 every year if he stays there. But I'd be very surprised. I think a bad year for Houston in that league is going to be 8-4 and four and probably 9-3. and three. So, And I think there's going to be good years where there's going to be double-digit wins. And you know, coming back to Chris, the point about Chris Peterson – Chris Peterson's personality just was such that there were certain places I just don't think he was going to be comfortable to go. Whereas my point about Tom Herman, whether this is he's it's a second year of coaching or as an assistant, Tom Herman's personality is such where I think he would fit in just about anywhere. Whereas, and I I think the world of Chris Peterson, as I said, but and he would admit this. There are just some places that I just think he eh, that's really not for me, and that's not the case. I would say with Tom Herman. Fair enough. Um, going back to SEC for a second, and I promise we will move on to other conferences. Some people are probably sick of hearing us talk about the SEC. Uh, Nick Saban's day at, at Media Days, his group session was pretty uh, uneventful. But he, it, what became the news of the day 
was that Paul Feinbaum challenged him a little bit on the set of the on the ESPN set about the no suspension or what seems like it's going to be no suspension for Cam Robinson um, for his arrest. And I mean, Saban at one point insinuated that the uh, officers that arrested him were LSU fans and. Uh, he's not going to prosecute him in the in for the public. I mean, he he was pretty worked up about you know anybody questioning his approach to discipline. Well, now he's got to do this all over again a little bit because now one of his starting offensive line, one of his other starting offensive linemen, is in, in trouble with the law. Yeah. So on Sunday, just as we're taping this, Alphonse Taylor, who started last year at, at right guard, he's actually a preseason second team All SEC player. Although Saban did demote him to second team in the spring because he's dealing with some weight issues. So he got a DUI. Um, my reaction initially was in light of the Cam Robinson stuff, but also in light of, and this is thing, something I remember we went back at last year pretty hard. Alabama starting strong safety or starting safety last year, Geno Smith got his second DUI and all he had to do was satisfy internal discipline. I was pretty surprised um, that Saban for, you know, all the talk about discipline, DUI is a pretty serious issue. It's not, you know, it's not minor in possession or whatever. People die when, you know, sometimes from DUI situations. And he didn't miss any time. You know, I had some Alabama fans going, no, that's not right. That's not right. And I was like, no, check the box score. Saban let, sat him out after the first DUI. He did not sit him out last year when they opened. He was a starting free safety when they opened at Wisconsin. Now, if, if he disciplines Alphonse Taylor and decides to sit him, you know, who knows? It may have some more to do with the fact that he's a second teamer at this point. I, I mean, I don't know. But, you know, I'll, I'll go back to what one of the things that came out of Nick Saban's comments the other day uh, when he was pressed on this issue of, of, of his, quote, disciplining. And he said, to think that the only way to help players is by suspending them for games is a punitive attitude that may not be correct. Uh, Stu, okay, it doesn't take much to be sarcastic or, or cynics about this and say, well, he's not going to sit him out for, for games because it hurts Nick Saban and it hurts his teammates as much as it may hurt the player. I mean, do you think we're being, we're being overly cynical or do you think there is a legitimate rationale to what Saban's saying? I think there's a legitimate rationale, but I don't know how you uh, – I just feel like the coaches are so selective about it. It's not like he's never suspended guys for games. But conveniently enough, it seems like it's usually the backups uh, or, or if they're not playing anybody significant that week. I don't think, you know, I think the fact that Alabama opens with USC this season definitely played a part in whether Cam Robinson was suspended or not. And it'll probably play a part in Alphonse Taylor. Um, is that being cynical? No, I think that's being realistic. That's, he's not alone in that. A lot of college football coaches, uh, you know, operate in that with that level of context. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, but I will you know, say I this, the- DUIs around the country almost universally, I mean, almost any time a guy, a player gets arrested for DUI, he gets suspended for a game. I don't know why that became the standard punishment. I remember this, you know, going back to maybe to Carlos Dunlap missing the SEC title game. For some reason, one game has kind of become the standard for it. So we're not talking about are they going to lose this guy for, for half the season. It's really will he be suspended for USC or not? Yeah, I mean, look, coming back to this issue, I think it ultimately, you know, we've talked about this at times about who, you know, who are you trying to send the message to? Are you trying to send a message to the player? Are you trying to send a message 
to people outside your team or are you trying to send a message to your locker room? And I think, you know, in some ways, Nick Saban does not care much what we think. Most coaches probably care a little bit what the media thinks or what the outside public thinks. Nick Saban's probably on the low end of caring about that because he's really successful. Um, he's, he's, you know, it, it's worked for him on the field. The one thing I would, I would wonder about here is, you know, you've had some issues and when you keep having the issues, you know, in the case of the Gene Smith part, you know, he missed a game the first after the first DUI and then for some reason didn't miss a game after the second, um, you know, is the message getting through to your, to your guys in the locker room now? I mean, that's the question. So, all right, we promised we were going to talk about other conferences. Uh, like you said, you went to Pac-12 Media Days from there. I followed it from afar a little bit on Twitter. It seems like Christian McCaffrey was kind of the, fair to say, the, the headline attraction there. He was. Now, what was there was a lot more media on Thursday when USC went than there was on Friday when Stanford went. You know, a lot of people had left. But, yes, he, he definitely was. He was the biggest star attraction. I mean, when you did have outside of him on, on Thursday, you know, the USC guys, Dory Jackson and, and Zach Banner, had a, had a pretty good-sized following. But, really, it was, all, it was all Christian McCaffrey. And I thought he handled it very well. I mean, I wrote this over the weekend. I think Christian McCaffrey had all the right answers for his growing stardom. I mean, the, the ways he was talking about it, I thought he was very – um, you know, very thoughtful in terms of this is the message I want to be about and talking about how his platform that he has now is, you know, to use it the right way to be very positive and spread a positive message. And of course, his, his head coach, David Shaw, you know, as I think we both agree is one of the more thoughtful head coaches when it comes to talking about big picture stuff beyond just football. And, you know, he was very comfortable with how how uh, Christian McCaffrey's handled. It was funny when I was I did one of these walk and talks with Christian uh, off to the side after he did the main media, and we we're going down towards they had a uh, a Pac-12 network set on the basically on the on the ground level, and so we're kind of going through all these back area places and through and you know down a what felt like a service elevator, and somewhere along the way. Uh, some guy from the Jimmy Kimmel live show comes up and introduces him and said, Hey, we'd love to have you on the show. And he's, you know, it's just like, that's the level. I mean, he is, he right now, more so than anybody I can think of, of any player, he is the face of college football going into 2016. Is that us saying that through our West Coast glasses, though? Because I'm sure in another part of the country, they would say Deshaun, Deshaun Watson. Watson. In another part of the country, they'd say Leonard Fournette. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's a little more so with McCaffrey, um, you know, because I think he is separate on the West Coast, whereas those other guys, I'm not saying Dalvin Cook is is, is in that mix, but some of those other guys are, are not that far apart. So I think it kind of dilutes it and splits it, whereas there's nobody else out here than, than Christian McCaffrey. I mean, I think some of the story with him, you know, even just you, you – the other, you know, when it was a couple of weeks ago, you see him playing the harmonica to Billy Joel's Piano Man and playing it really well. And people are like, you know, this guy's kind of too good to be true. And I think you got to tamp that stuff down. But when he's talking about, well, I taught myself how to do this. And it's just, you know, he's got, he's handled a lot of things on, I think, in a very, very um, positive way so far. And that's not to say these other guys haven't, because I think, 
you know, Deshaun Watson's a really good representative of college football. At, you know, with some of the humanitarian stuff that kid has done or that guy's done has been terrific. I think Leonard Fournette has handled it well. So, um, so that that part is good because you know we've had a, as you as we've talked about a lot of really ugly off season. So beyond that, the other thing is Stanford was the preseason media pick to be the uh, to win the Pac-12. That surprise you at all or no? No, because they at this point they've done it three times in four years, and it's not like there's another obvious candidate. You know, Stanford has a big question mark with breaking in a new quarterback, but pretty much every team in that conference has a big question mark. I know that you're high on Washington. I'm high on Washington. It's tough to pull the trigger on them actually winning the conference, though, when they haven't even come close in uh, 15 years. And I did see Chris Peterson. I liked his response to the, you know, all the preseason hype where he said it seems like the less we do, the more hype we get. Hey, I got, I got. Um, before we get further into the Pac-12, I got two other Larry Scott things. So he did a little, little. I don't want to call it a one-on-one. It was uh, me and like three other reporters had, you know, kind of a lunch with him. And one of the questions he got asked, and it was from somebody, from, you know, who covers USC, was a was about an issue you and I talked about last week, which was kind of the awkward aspect of having SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey being the NCAA's chair of its Committee on Infractions, and he's going to have that position apparently until 2019, which is a long time. And, you know, I think you and I both agree that it smacks of conflict of interest, and Larry Scott was asked about it, and he said, you know what, I would not be opposed to an outside group taking the place of the Committee on Infractions because it would be cleaner, and he just kind of agreed with it. Um, now that doesn't mean that's going to happen, but it was interesting that he didn't, you know, didn't, you know, kind of dance around it at all. I, you know, there's been talk for years, and I would agree wholeheartedly that that an outside, you know, investigation, you know, trained investigators should take over the uh, enforcement aspect of it. That it's just silly uh, to train people in Indianapolis, you know, often uh, with no background in that to be. Uh, the, the, the people who are in charge of busting schools. In terms of the Committee on Infractions and penalizing schools, you know, in light of the, the uh, Tom Brady kind of finally throwing in the towel on Deflategate, people think that Roger Goodell wields too much power and discipline uh, in the NCAA. People think that the Committee on Infractions is too weak. You know, I don't, who would be an, who, who should be an outside party that should decide whether you know, Ole Miss goes and gets a bowl ban or not. All right. So in addition to, to Larry Scott kind of weighing in on the Committee on Fractions and the conflict of interest potential there, I had also asked him about Christian McCaffrey having this record-setting all-time year statistically and not winning the Heisman and the fact that the league had them play or TV had them play ten, uh, seven games that kicked off at 10 p.m. Eastern or later. And, you know, whether that was a factor and the Pac-12 is, has changed it so they're not going to have as many late kickoffs. And Larry Scott told me he didn't think that mattered one iota, as he put it, to Christian McCaffrey. Uh, didn't make one iota of difference. And he kind of used Marcus Mariota winning it the year before playing what he said was a similar schedule. Now, I went back and looked. Marcus Mariota played five games that kicked off at 10 p.m. Eastern 
or later, which isn't quite the same. And also, I think Marcus Mariota had a bigger brand name at that point. And every Heisman race is a little different. Uh, what I thought was interesting, you know, and, and then he went off on this kind of further down the road where he talked about how the conference, though, is at a competitive disadvantage when it comes to the Heisman, just based on the zip codes of where the voters are from, pointing out that McCaffrey wasn't even in time. He thought there was some kind of Stanford stigma that they just don't get the credit that probably they should have at this point of the program's run. And because it was almost like because they're such a high academic school, people kind of are, are quick to dismiss them. You buy some of that? Well, let's go back through that piece by piece. I mean, I, I do think the Pac-12 is at a disadvantage, and for the exact opposite reasons he said. I think he's in a little bit of denial or wanting to spin the Pac-12's contractual obligations if he doesn't think uh, 10.30 Eastern kickoffs have a big factor. They do. To say zip codes, you know, say what you will about the Heisman voting process. There's a lot of flaws to it. But they do make a point of dividing it geographically. You know, the, the West Coast gets the same number of votes as the Midwest, gets the same number of votes as the Southeast, and so on. Um, unless you think that the West Coast should get a disproportionate amount of votes relative to their population or states or however they do it, you know, there is an effort to, to take away the um, regional biases. So, the, and then the Stanford point, that's a great question. Stanford's pretty accepted at this point. Um, it's just kind of a weird thing where they've just had a bunch of guys here who all finished second and for very, for different reasons. You know, I think at the time of Toby Gerhardt's run, they weren't, at that point, they weren't really on the map yet, and that probably hurt. Uh, he probably had, he, I don't think he had any name recognition going into the season, but everybody knew Andrew Luck going into the, you know, his final season. He didn't get second because of the, uh, because of the Stanford factory got second because he had, you know, lost 53-30 to Oregon late in the season and, uh, and RG3 took off. You know, we've gone over the McCaffrey thing a million times why he or he would or wouldn't have won. I do think late kickoffs hurt him, and I think, um, you know, I think the combination of that and all the um, positive attention that Derek, came Derrick Henry's way when he, you know, outdueled Leonard Fournette in one of the most watched games of the season. Getting to the rest of the conference, any other observations from? I'm sure you followed a little bit online. Uh, How was? Um, I'm curious about Clay Helton in that environment. You know, his first media days uh, as since taking over as permanent head coach, and obviously, you know, USC. Like you said, the media attendance is higher when they're there. They're basically the hometown team in a situation like that. Yeah, it was very low key, to be honest. I mean, his two players. I mean, Zach Banner. You know, it's, it is a great quote. He's this mammoth human being who told me he lost 45 pounds from last season. And he's still 342 pounds, so that's telling how big he was. Uh, you have Adoree Jackson who tried to make it to the Olympics and is a is a pretty dynamic personality too. I was I really noticed a big maturation both physically and you know personality wise from what he was like back when I saw him at the opening. You know, before his senior year of high school. So I thought that was good but clay helton was kind of clay helton he wasn't flashy i think a lot of people wanted to talk to him about quarterbacks you know and what they got there but it was just it was it was very low key and i think 
you know, just as a step back, the, it was about as polar opposite from SEC media days you could get. I mean, SEC media days were at Hoover, Alabama, in a hotel where you feel like you're in a casino for three days straight. There's tons of media. You know, it's, it's nothing's off script. Whereas that was at Hollywood and Highland, which is like, you know, it's wide open. It's out in the you know open air. It's very informal. Everybody seems to be in a pretty good mood. It's just what is, way different. Uh, for people who don't know, what is Hollywood and Highland? Um, it's really you can. It's in the middle of the LA celebrity scene, you know, and it's it's just kind of a very touristy place. There's not a lot of signage that you're at Pac-12 Media Day until you're in the middle of it, and it's open air. And it's a it, of all the venues, I think the Pac-12 has has had when they've tried to showcase some kind of Hollywood or you know even the Fox lot or Paramount or somewhere. This was the most you know, media friendly place, I thought where there was, and I thought, I thought they did a nice job with it. Well, that's good to hear. I mean, sometimes they seem to go way over the top on trying to make it glitzy and glamorous and kind of losing the whole purpose in the, of it in the first place. Um, yeah, I mean, my only other, uh, observation would be that, you know, Mike Leach is usually in his element there, but it's hard to say. I mean, that's just how he is in any environment whether he really stole the show or that was just kind of Leach being Leach. Yeah, I think it was just kind of Leach being Leach. He really, you know, everybody goes up there expecting him to do stand-up comedy, which he kind of does in his own warped way. And, you know, look, this is a team he had that was, was, uh, that won nine games last year, and he has a legitimate Heisman candidate in Luke Falk. I thought his star player that he brought on offense was Gabe Marks. Luke Falk's an underclassman. Gabe Marks is a senior, and he's an L.A. kid. And Gabe Marks is, an, is pretty interesting. I mean, he'll probably, he may lead the country in receptions. And he talked about, you know, how why he thinks Luke Fox should have won the Heisman. He was like, you know, Mike Leach gets credit because he's Mike Leach. But Luke Fox's the one who changed everything here. And I thought... You know, through all the, you know, Leach talking about Pokemon and Leach talking about, you know, you know, a 16-team playoff or whatever he wants now. I mean, all these things, you know, it, there was other substance around it, which which probably gets kind of lost a little bit. In the, so, to in be the clear, was it Gabe Marks or Mike Leach or both who think Luke Fox should have won the Heisman last year? Both. So, if Mike Leach thinks he should have won the Heisman, which is ridiculous, but if he thinks that... Why, if he thinks he want, he should be a Heisman candidate, then he should bring him to media days. Why would you not want to showcase well, your a guy who you think should have won the Heisman last year? I think it comes back to the same reason why Jim Mora didn't bring Josh Rosen. A lot of these coaches just feel like the senior has earned the right to do it. You know, Gabe Morks probably is an All-American candidate. It's not like this is the year where Leach brings his special, you know, his kicker and his punter. So, all right. Well, looking ahead to Big Twelve Monday and Tuesday in Dallas. You know, I think first and foremost, people are fascinated by Baylor. You know, this is um, the first time that they have had a media obligation since all of the uh, since all of the upheaval there. This will be Jim Grobe representing Baylor. Um, I, Seth Russell, I believe, is that correct? Seth Russell is. The, they have two players. A lot of teams are bringing four. They are bringing two. Well, that's too bad because because those guys probably need help. You know want to spread the workload more than anybody. Um, yeah, look, Seth Russell is a, is a very good story. He was obviously coming back from from the neck injury. I know he's done. You know, this is unfortunate for, for Baylor as well, that you do have a lot of kids in that program who've done a lot of positive things. I mean, he's somebody, I think, who's done 
some mission work overseas. And so, you know, I think a lot of times that's going to get lost where everyone's going to talk about, you know, the reason why our Bryles and the AD and the president are no longer there. Well, you know, they timed it, this Mac Rhodes hiring, so that they can introduce him there in Dallas at Media Days. That's one way to flip the script, turn it ahead a little bit, so people are focused on him and not the people that got left behind. Well, you know, it's interesting how the conferences do things differently. The SEC waited until the last day of their four-day event to release the uh, wh- who the media picked. Um, which was Alabama and Tennessee. Big 12's preseason poll came out last week. Oklahoma running away with it. 24 of the 26 first-place votes. TCU got the other two. Oklahoma State is the pick third. Baylor fourth. I'm guessing that would have been higher pre-Art Bryles firing. Texas fifth. Texas Tech sixth. West Virginia seventh. Kansas State eighth. Iowa State ninth. Kansas tenth. What stands out to you the most there? I think Kansas State might surprise some people. Yeah, I don't know why anybody would ever pick Bill Snyder to finish eighth. I mean, they have. I got to see them in person a couple of times last year. They have some good players who are back on defense. They were so beaten up on offense. Yeah, they lost a really good offensive lineman, but I think they may surprise some people. I get Texas Tech because I think Pat Mahomes is is in is prime for a big big year. So, and from from your side, what what jumped out at you besides K State? Surprised TCU is not getting a little more love. You know, I understand Oklahoma is the defending champ and coming off a playoff season and brings back Baker Mayfield and so on and so forth. You know, we've talked about this on here, though. I don't know that the difference was that much between them last year. They played uh, in Norman, TCU, without Boykin in that game, and Oklahoma didn't put it away until very, very, very late. And the TCU mounted uh, a comeback against them. Uh, I don't know. TCU is is the team I'm leaning toward picking to win the Big 12. So I guess I'm surprised that that only two out of 26 voters voted for them. Okay, well, we are having some connection issues, so we're probably going to have to wrap this podcast a little bit shorter than we intended, though we did get to all three of the conferences and conference media days that we had hoped to address. So um, next podcast, which will be later this week when we're both back in our respective towns, uh, we will be getting to your emails that you've been uh, building up for a little bit. So get in your questions now to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. And as always, if you enjoy The Audible, please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. We'll see you next time.